Section 49 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Glenn Scheidler. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 49, Chapter 60, Part 2. Though the Levellers had for a time been suppressed by the audacious spirit of Cromwell, they still continued to propagate their doctrines among the private men and inferior officers, who pretended a right to be consulted, as before, in the administration of the Commonwealth. They now practiced against their officers the same lesson which they had been taught against the Parliament. They framed a remonstrance and sent five agitators to present it to the general and council of war. These were cashiered with enogamy by sentence of a court-martial. One Lockyer, having carried his sedition further, was sentenced to death. But this punishment was so far from quelling the mutinous spirit that above a thousand of his companions showed their adherence to him by attending his funeral and wearing in their hats black and sea-green ribbons by way of favors about four thousand assembled at burford under the command of thompson a man formerly condemned for sedition by a court-martial but pardoned by the general colonel reynolds and afterwards fairfax and cromwell fell upon them while unprepared for defense and seduced by the appearance of a treaty four hundred were taken prisoners some of them capitally punished the rest pardoned and this tumultuous spirit, though it still lurked in the army and broke out from time to time, seemed for the present to be suppressed. Petitions, framed in the same spirit of opposition, were presented to the Parliament by the Lieutenant Colonel Lilburn, the person who, for dispensing seditious levels, had formerly been treated with such severity by the Star Chamber. His liberty was at this time as ill-relished by the Parliament and he was thrown into prison as a promoter of sedition and disorder in the commonwealth. The woman applied by petition for his release, but were now desired to mind their household affairs and leave the government of the state to the men. From all quarters the parliament was harassed with petitions of a very free nature, which strongly spoke the sense of the nation, and proved how ardently all men longed for the restoration of their laws and liberties. Even in a feast which the city gave to the Parliament and Council of the State, it was deemed a requisite precaution, if we may credit Walker and Dugdale, to swear all the cooks that they would serve nothing but wholesome food to them. The Parliament judged it necessary to enlarge the laws of high treason beyond those narrow bounds within which they had been confined during the monarchy. They even comprehended verbal offenses, nay, intentions, though they had never appeared in any overt act against the state. To affirm the present government to be a usurpation, to assert that the Parliament or the Council of State were tyrannical or illegal, to endeavor subvertly their authority, or stirring up sedition against them, these offenses were declared to be high treason. The power of imprisonment, of which the petition of right had bereaved the king, it was now found necessary to restore to the Council of the State and all the jails in England were filled with men whom jealousies and fears of the ruling party had represented as dangerous.
the taxes continued by the new government, and which, being unusual, were esteemed heavy, increased the general ill-will under which it labored. Besides the customs and excess, 90,000 pounds a month were levied on land for the subsistence of the army. The sequestrations and compositions of the royalists, the sale of the crown lands, and the dean and chapter lands, though they yielded great sums, were not sufficient to support the vast expenses, and, as was suspected, the great depredations of the parliament and of their creatures. Amidst all these difficulties and disturbances, the steady mind of Cromwell, without confusion or embarrassment, still pursued its purpose. While he was collecting an army of 12,000 men in the west of England, he sent to Ireland, under Reynolds and Venables, a reinforcement of 4,000 horse and foot, in order to strengthen Jones and enable him to defend himself against the Marquis of Ormond, who lay at Finglass and was making preparations for the attack of Dublin. Inchiquin, who had now made a treaty with the king's lieutenant, having with a separate body taken Treda and Dundalk, gave a defeat to O'Farrell, who served under O'Neill, and to young Coote, who commanded some parliamentary forces. After he joined his troops to the main army, with whom for some time he remained united, Ormond passed the river Liffey, and took post at Rathmines, two miles from Dublin, with a view of commencing the siege of that city. In order to cut off all further supplies from Jones, he had begun the reparation of an old fort which lay at the gates of Dublin, and being exhausted with continual fatigue for some days, he had retired to rest, after leaving orders to keep his forces under arms. He was suddenly awakened with the noise of firing, and starting from his bed, saw everything already in tumult and confusion. Jones, an excellent officer, formerly a lawyer, had sallied out with the reinforcement newly arrived, and attacking the party employed in repairing the fort, he totally rooted them, pursued the advantage, and fell in with the army, which had neglected Ormond's orders. These he soon threw into disorder, put them to flight, and in spite of all the efforts of the Lord Lieutenant, chased them off the field, seized all their tents, baggage, ammunition, and returned victorious to Dublin, after killing a thousand men and taking above two thousand prisoners. This loss, which threw some blemish on the military character of Ormond, was irreparable to the royal cause. That numerous army, which, with so many pains and difficulty, the Lord Lieutenant had been collecting for more than a year, was dispersed in a moment. Cromwell soon after arrived in Dublin, where he was welcomed with shouts and rejoicings. He hastened to Treda. That town was well fortified. Ormond had thrown into it a good garrison of 3,000 men, under Sir Arthur Aston, an officer of reputation. He expected that Treda, lying in the neighborhood of Dublin, would first be attempted by Cromwell, and he was desirous to employ the enemy some time in that siege while he himself should repair his broken forces. But Cromwell knew the importance of despatch. Having made a breach, he ordered a general assault. Though twice repulsed with a loss, he renewed the attack, and himself, along with Ireton, led on his men. All opposition was overborne by the furious valor of the troops. The town was taken sword in hand, and orders being issued to give no quarter, a cruel slaughter was made of the garrison. Even a few who were saved by the soldiers, satiated with blood, were next day miserably butchered by orders from the general. 
One person alone of the garrison escaped to be a messenger of this universal havoc and destruction. Cromwell pretended to retaliate by this severe execution the cruelty of the Irish massacre, but he well knew that almost the whole garrison was English, and his justice was only a barbarous policy. In order to terrify all other garrisons from resistance, his policy, however, had the desired effect. Having led the army without delay to Wexford, he began to batter the town. The garrison, after a slight defense, offered to capitulate, but before they obtained a secession, they imprudently neglected their guards, and the English army rushed in upon them. The same severity was exercised as at Treda. Every town before which Cromwell presented himself now opened its gates without resistance. Ross, though strongly garrisoned, was surrendered by Lord Taff. Having taken Estianage, Cromwell threw a bridge over the barrow and made himself master of passage and carry. The English had no further difficulties to encounter than what arose from fatigue and the advanced seasons. Fluxes and contagious distempers crept in among the soldiers, who perished in great numbers. Jones himself, the brave governor of Dublin, died at Wexford, and Cromwell had so far advanced with his decayed army that he began to find it difficult either to subsist in the enemy's country or to retreat to his own garrisons. But while he was in these straits, Cork, Kinsale, and all the English garrisons in Munster deserted to him and opened their gates, resolved to share the fortunes of their victorious countrymen. This desertion of the English put an end to Ormond's authority, which was already much diminished by the misfortunes at Dublin, Treda, and Wexford. The Irish, actuated by national and religious prejudices, could no longer be kept in obedience by a Protestant governor, who was so unsuccessful in all his enterprises. The clergy renowned their excommunications against him and his adherents, and added the terrors of superstition to those which arose from a victorious enemy. Cromwell, having received a reinforcement from England, again took the field early in the spring. He made himself master of Kilkenny and Clonmel, the only places where he met with any vigorous resistance. The frame of the Irish Union being in a manner dissolved, Ormond soon after left the island and delegated his authority to Clanricard, who found his so affairs so desperate as to admit of no remedy. The Irish were glad to embrace the banishment as a refuge. Above 40,000 men passed into foreign service, and Cromwell, well pleased to free the island from enemies who could never be cordially reconciled to the English, gave them full liberty and leisure for their embarkation. While Cromwell proceeded with such interrupted success in Ireland, which in the space of nine months he had almost entirely subdued, fortune was preparing for him a new scene of victory and triumph in Scotland. Charles was at the Hague when Sir Joseph Douglas brought him intelligence that he was proclaimed king by the Scottish Parliament. At the same time, Douglas informed him of the hard conditions annexed to the proclamation and extremely dampened that joy which might arise from his being recognized sovereign in one of his kingdoms. Charles, too, considered that those who pretended to acknowledge his title were at the very time in actual rebellion against his family and would be sure to entrust very little authority in his hands and scarcely would afford him personal liberty and security as the prospect of affairs in ireland was at that time not unpromising he intended rather to try his fortune in that kingdom from which he expected more dutiful submission and obedience meanwhile he found it expedient to depart from holland 
the people in the united provinces were much attached to his interests besides his connection with the family of orange which was extremely beloved by the populace all men regarded with compassion his helpless condition and expressed the greatest abhorrence against the murder of his father a deed to which nothing they thought but the rage of fanaticism and faction could have impelled the parliament but though the public in general bore great favor to the king the states were uneasy at his presence they dreaded the parliament so formidable by their power and so prosperous in all their enterprises they apprehended the most precipitate resolutions from men of such violence and haughty dispositions and after the murder of dorislaus they found it still more necessary to satisfy the english commonwealth by removing the king to a distance from them dorislaus though a native of holland had long lived in england and being employed as an assistant to the high court of justice which condemned the late king he had risen to a great credit and favor with the ruling party they sent an envoy to holland but no sooner had he arrived at the hague than he was set up by some royalists chiefly retainers to montrose they rushed into the room where he was sitting with some company dragged him from the table put him to death as the first victim to their murdered sovereign if very leisurely and peacefully separated themselves and though orders were issued by the magistrates to arrest them these were executed with such slowness and reluctance that the criminals had all of them the opportunity to make their escape charles having passed some time at paris where no assistance was given to him and even few civilties were paid to him made his retreat into jersey where his authority was still acknowledged here winram laird of liberton came to him as deputy from the committee of estates in scotland and informed him of the conditions to which he must necessarily submit before he could be admitted to the exercise of his authority conditions more severe were never imposed by the subjects upon their sovereign but as the affairs of ireland began to decline and the king found it no longer safe to venture himself into that island he gave a civil answer to winram and desired commissions to meet him at breda in order to enter into a treaty with regard to these conditions the earls of cassilis and lothain lord burley the laird of liberton and other commissioners arrived at breda but without any power of treating the king must submit without reserve to the terms imposed upon him the terms were that he should issue a proclamation banishing from court all excommunicated persons that is all those who either under hamilton or montrose had ventured their lives for his family that no english subject who had served against the parliament should be allowed to approach him that he should bind himself by his royal promise to take the covenant that he should ratify all acts of parliament by which presbyterian government the directory of worship the confessions of faith and the catechisms were established and that in civil affairs he should entirely conform himself to the direction of parliament and in ecclesiastical to that of the assembly these proposals the commissioners after passing some time in sermons and prayers in order to express the more determined resolution very solemnly delivered to the king the king's friends were divided with regard to the part which he should act in this critical conjuncture most of his english counsellors dissuaded him from accepting conditions so disadvantageous and dishonourable they said that the men who now governed scotland were the most furious and bigoted of that party which notwithstanding his gentle government had first excited a rebellion against the late king after the most unlimited concessions had renewed their rebellion and stopped the progress of his victories in england and after he had entrusted his persons to them in his utmost distress 
had basely sold him, together with their own honor, to his barbarous enemies, that they had yet shown no marks of repentance, and even in the same terms which they now proposed, displayed the same anti-monarchical principles and the same jealousy of their sovereign, by which they had ever been actuated, that nothing could be more dishonorable than that the king, in his first enterprise, should sacrifice, merely for the empty name of royalty, those principles for which his father had died a martyr, and in which he himself had been strictly educated, that by this hypocrisy he might lose the royalists who alone were sincerely attached to him, but never would gain the Presbyterians who were averse to his family and his cause, and would ascribe his compliance merely to policy and necessity, that the Scots had refused to give him any assurances of their intending to restore him to the throne of England, and could they even be brought to make such an attempt, it had sufficiently appeared, by the event of Hamilton's engagement, how unequal their force was to so great an enterprise, that on the first check which they should receive, Argyle and his partisans would lay hold of the quickest expedient for reconciling themselves to the English Parliament, and would betray the king, as they had done his father, into the hands of his enemies, and, however desperate the royal cause, it must still be regarded as highly imprudent in the king to make such a sacrifice of his honor, where the sole purchase was to endanger his life or liberty. The Earl of Lanark, now Duke of Hamilton, the Earl of Lauderdale, and the others of that party who had been banished from their country for that late engagement, were then with the king, and being desirous of returning home in his retinue, they joined the opinion of the young Duke of Buckingham, and earnestly pressed him to submit the conditions required of him. It was urged that nothing would more gratify the king's enemies than to see him fall into the snare laid for him, and by so scrupulous a nicety leave the possession of his dominions to those who desired but a pretense for excluding him. That Argyle, not daring so far to oppose the bent of the nation as to throw off all allegiance to his sovereign, had embraced this expedient by which he had hoped to make Charles dethrone himself, and refuse a kingdom which was offered him, that it was not to be doubted but the same national spirit, assisted by Hamilton and his party, would rise still higher in favor of their prince after he had entrusted himself to their fidelity, and would much abate the rigor of the conditions now opposed upon him, that whatever might be the present intentions of the ruling party, they must unavoidably be engaged in war with England and must accept the assistance of the king's friends of all parties, in order to support themselves against a power so much superior, that how much soever a steady, uniform conduct might have been suitable to the advanced age and strict engagements of the late king, no one would throw any blame on a young prince for complying with conditions which necessity had extorted from him, that even the rigor of those principles professed by his father, though with some it had exalted his character, had been extremely prejudicial to his interests, nor could any be more serviceable to the royal cause than to give all parties room to hope for more equal and more indulgent maxims of the government, and that where affairs were reduced to so desperate a situation, dangers ought little to be regarded, and the king's honor lay rather in showing some early symptoms of courage and activity than in choosing strictly a party among theological controversies with which, it might be supposed, he was as yet very little acquainted. These arguments, seconded by the advice of the Queen Mother and of the Prince of Orange, the King's brother-in-law, who both of them thought it ridiculous to refuse a kingdom merely from regard to episcopacy, had great influence on Charles, but what chiefly determined him to comply 
was the account brought him of the fate of Montrose, who, with all the circumstances of rage and contumely, had been put to death by his zealous countrymen, though in this instance the king saw more evidently the furious spirit by which the Scots were actuated. He had now no further resource, and was obliged to grant whatever was demanded of him. Montrose, having laid down his arms at the command of the late king, had retired into France, and, contrary to his natural disposition, had lived for some time inactive in Paris. He there had become acquainted with the famous Cardinal de Ritz, and that penetrating judge celebrates him in his memoirs as one of those heroes of whom there are no longer any remains in the world, and who are only to be met with in Plutarch. Desirous of improving his marital genius, he took a journey to Germany, was caressed by the emperor, received the rank of marshal, and proposed to levy a regiment for the imperial service. While employed for that purpose in the Low Countries, he heard of the tragical death of the king, and at the same time received from his young master a renewal of his commission of captain-general in Scotland. His ardent and daring spirit needed but this authority to put him in action. He gathered followers in Holland and the north of Germany, whom his great reputation alerted to him. The king of Denmark and the duke of Holstein sent him some small supply of money. The queen of Sweden furnished him with arms. The prince of Orange with ships and Montrose hastened his enterprise, lest the king's agreement with the Scots should make him revoke his commission, set out for the Orkneys, with about 500 men, most of them Germans. End of section 49, chapter 60, part 2. Recording by Glenn Scheidler, Randolph, New Jersey.